This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio Podcast on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to at pubweeklyradio, that's pubwklyradio on Twitter. Today, we'll be talking with Michael J. Martinez, whose debut novel, The Daedalus Incident, blends steampunk and hard science fiction. Then nonfiction reviews editor Alex Crowley will give us the lowdown on some hot books about sex. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So I'm looking right now at uh, the nonfiction list, which has, has not really changed in the last week. I, I will say that Zealot, which we talked about last week, is now topping the list at number one. Uh, and the only real new uh, entry on the list is uh, at number 25, Mark Hyman, uh, who's a... Uh, a uh, doctor, and uh, he writes about health, and his recent book is The Blood Sugar Solution Cookbook, which uh, addresses the issues in his uh, best-selling book, The Blood Sugar Solution Book, and this is the cookbook uh, recipes that go along with that. Now, speaking of cookbooks, we, we've got something that in the, just in the last uh, week has, has jumped, last two weeks, I should say, uh, has jumped from number 20 on uh, the total nonfiction list to number eight. Last week it was at number one on the cookbook list. Now it's at number two. And this is something, the uh, Jerusalem uh, cookbook by uh, Yoram Adelenghi and Sam uh, Tamimi. Uh, there are two chefs uh, who were raised in Jerusalem. Adelenghi was uh, raised in the uh, Jewish section of Jerusalem and uh, Tamimi in the uh, Muslim section. And so in the Arabic section, he's Muslim. Here's two chefs who have also opened up a restaurant in London. Um, Otto Lenghi had a great book uh, about two years ago called Plenty, Vibrant Vegetable Dishes from London's Otto Lenghi, his which, restaurant. Which I have and is amazing. It's fantastic. It's an amazing it? book. I've heard that from several. I don't have it. I know we gave it a good review. And we talk about this. We Our review, this is a book that's been out for a year now. Uh, and, and now it's just starting to hit. They've had a pretty steady following, but it seems that people are now creating their own Jerusalem uh, uh, cookbook cooking club. So, so where they'll get people together and cook from recipes, you know, cook recipes from the book. And this has become pretty hot. The New York Times uh, devoted a lot of you know, a lot of space to it, uh, to the book and to this phenomenon uh, two weeks ago, which helped boost sales. But really, it's been over the last year sold 80,000 copies, which is very good for a cookbook. And what's exceptional is that they don't have what we would think of star platforms. They they aren't on celebrity TV. They aren't on Food Network. Um, They're not, uh, you know, there's several 
bloggers who have had big cookbooks, uh, the Pioneer Woman Cooks and uh, uh, the Smitten Kitchen uh, by Deb Perlman, uh, that's, and they've had their own uh, platform uh, from which to, uh, to bounce these cookbooks. But they don't. And they're just really respected chefs that are offering, I, I think, accessible uh, takes on Jerusalem cooking with talking about all the influences of of the food in Jerusalem and they've really uh, uh they've really kind of tapped into something it seems i mean here we have uh i think middle eastern cooking is hot and um what they're doing, we say that uh, we say that in our review, it's written uh, as an homage to the city that defines the authors. This cookbook offers snapshots of the multicultural, multi-flavored city that is Jerusalem. So you'll have uh, recipes like uh, from Turkey, like Swiss chard fritters, uh, from Tunisia, uh, and you'll have shakshush. Let me pronounce this shakshushka, and then Iran from Iran you have broad bean cuckoo, and these the, are various recipes that from the people who've moved there and influenced it. But but it's a pretty hot title. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I love the idea of cooking parties. Maybe I should host one or two of those myself. Sure, pick out a favorite cookbook and see what you can do. What do we have on the fiction list? Similarly to nonfiction, there's very little that's new. Um, the the first seven books are the same seven books that were in the top seven spots last week. Mm-hmm. They've been very slightly rearranged, but uh, pretty much the same. Uh, J.K. Rowling as Robert Galbraith is still number one. Um, and uh, Dan Brown with Inferno is back at number two. So they're, they, you just have the super mega bestsellers hanging out at the top of the list. Yeah overshadowing everybody else. Um, so the first new title on the list is CJ Box's The Highway, uh, which is on at number eight. Um, this is a, a thriller of sorts. We reviewed it online. Or I'm sorry, we, it was it was reviewed by uh, Jack Womack. Um, mm-hmm. This is a signature review, oh, which great. PW uh, publishes occasionally, where we get somebody who knows a lot about a particular right. topic to cover a book on that same topic. Um And so uh, it's basically a story of two teenage sisters going on a road trip, um, and then uh, it gets involved with a serial killer uh, who enjoys capturing and torturing his prey. And um, when the sister's car breaks down in the wilderness, they think they've been rescued, but the rescuer is uh, this particular serial killer. So uh, it's a very intense thriller, um, and it actually talks about uh, these sort of insights uh, into the life of the of a long distance trucker, which is the job that this guy has, uh, and you know, a, a real sense of what it is like to be on the road for a living, and um, possibly what that can do to you after a while uh, sure. without a lot of human companionship. Though I will say from my personal perspective, many, many, many years ago, I spent a summer in Illinois doing data entry at a craft foods processing plant. Uh, and I would take my lunch breaks, hanging out in the lunchroom with all the truckers who were there to, uh, to, to pick up the stuff that we were producing and taking right. it all off to who knows where. And they were a perfectly decent bunch of people. So I don't want anyone to read this book and get the idea that all truckers or serial killers right and and of course there was the uh uh the, the movie then the series and i think based on the book the hitcher mm-hmm. uh was the hitchhiker uh which was also a trucker serial killer but anyway that's something entirely different <laughs> it's it's just that sense of isolation i sure. think that um that really 
you know, maybe if you're a writer and you're thinking about how am I going to write a serial killer novel, how would somebody get the opportunity uh, to do this and then get away with it? Then you think about long you know, stretches of isolated uh, right. road and you think sure. of having your own vehicle and your own excuse for being wherever you are. And, uh, and uh, I, I think it's just a very appealing sort of scenario, even though it might not necessarily have that much to do with... Uh, the real world. Right, so, right. So that's The Highway by C.J. Box, and it's number eight on our bestseller list, uh, debuting at number eight. Um, and then, again, you know, a lot of familiar titles till we get back down to uh, number 15. And this is Leanne Moriarty's The Husband's Secret, uh, which uh, we reviewed. She's an Australian author. Uh, this is her fifth novel. Um, and our review says that she puts three women in an impossible situation and doesn't cut them any slack. Um, so there's a, a woman who has a perfect marriage, perfect daughters, a perfectly organized life. And then she finds a letter from her husband that says to be opened only in the event of his death. He's still alive, but she opens it anyway, and everything she believes is thrown into doubt. Uh, so this is a real family drama book, uh, and you know, it's, it's very much about the, the tensions that family life can place on women, uh, both you know, mm. from externally and from one generation to the next. Lots about mothers and daughters, mothers and sons. Uh, and our review says that it's simultaneously a page-turner and a book that you have to put down occasionally to think about and absorb. And Moriarty's novel challenges the reader as well as her characters in the best possible way. So that is number 15 on our fiction list. And, uh, and that's pretty much it. There's there's not all that much that's exciting um, this week. Uh, just you know, a lot of the same. Uh, Linda Fairstein's book also shows up at number 17. It's a death angel. But even that in some ways is more of the same. It's her 15th novel. Um, she's a bestseller. And uh, it's a, a, another thriller. Um, these just seem to be perennially popular and uh, in this case it, there's a, a serial rapist instead of a serial killer but you know th- these are these are the stories that people want um, I think there's you know like an interesting psychology thesis to be written on why people love these books right yes exactly and but uh, and I, I think also as we know August is pretty slow for uh, for in the publishing industry right. uh, when I think uh, in about two three weeks we're going to start seeing some uh, changes on our list yeah definitely big books coming out in September and October um, even the end of August it's really when people are done with summer vacation and ready to sort of get revved up again and uh, some people will be buying books for school some right. people will be uh, actually this an unusual thing on our mass market list, dictionaries are suddenly really hot. Uh, and some of our, our theorizing around the office has been that it's because people need to buy them for school. So right. uh, definitely already getting started thinking about this and getting revved up for your fall reading habits and for a lot of big books to come out. Sure. sure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Michael J. Martinez will recount his many trials and tribulations and bringing his first book to print. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Michael J. Martinez on the line. His debut novel is The Daedalus Incident, in which miners on Mars in the year 2132 discover that humans first visited the planet in 1779. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. 
So if you could, give us a brief summary of the two interlocking stories that make up this novel. Well, basically, I'm crashing a 18th century Navy frigate into 22nd century Mars. That's what I tell people, and basically, it seems to open their eyes a bit. What, what happen, what's happening here is um, you have a 22nd century mining colony on Mars, and they're suffering through a number of strange occurrences, uh, earthquakes, some strange radiation, things really starting to fall apart in a very big way, and they're not sure why. Uh, but as it goes on, they discover it's an incursion from another dimension. Um, in that dimension, the historic age of sail, the Napoleonic era age of sail, occurs not on the seas of Earth, but in between the worlds of our solar system. Um, it's a historical fantasy slash science fiction mashup that uh, surprisingly seems to be going pretty well. So this book is a, it's a really unusual combination of genres. I mean, steampunk is about reimagining history uh, with you know, different technological innovations, whereas hard science fiction is more about extrapolating current technology into the future. So what gave you the idea to blend the two? Well, you know, there was that old Arthur C. Clarke quote where advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that was something that was very much stuck in my mind. I, I, I really loved the idea of doing sailing ships in space. I didn't necessarily want to go with uh, out-and-out magic. I didn't want to go with necessarily steampunk. I settled on uh, something that was actually somewhat common in the period, um, alchemy. Um, as sort of the engine that provides uh, ships with the ability to travel between very different planets than what we're used to in our solar system. Um, and I liked the, the, the transposition with a future setting as well. Um, so you could deal with themes of exploration and you could deal with uh, discoveries and, and that sort of thing and, and what drives exploration. Um, and bringing the two together, uh, one man's alchemy is another man's quantum physics. So uh, uh, it seemed to come together fairly well. Got it. Um, and why those particular years, 2132 and 1779? 2132 was chosen because I wanted to have a real, realistic time frame for uh, the colonization of Mars. Um, I... I am not so um, enthusiastic or... Uh, you know, I, I don't think we're going to get to Mars as early as people say we are. Um, and I wanted to be sure that there was a reason for going. Uh, Exploration is fueled by economics, rarely altruism. So you wanted to get the technology to a point where um, it was feasible to go to Mars, to mine on Mars, and to do something with the stuff you've dug up that, that's profitable. Um, so that's what made me choose this period, um, 120 some odd years into the future. Um, as far as 1779, that was a, a very specific point um, in uh, world history uh, in terms of the war for American independence. Um, and we do play off of some of those themes in there. Um, and as a precursor to the Napoleonic era, um, which I'm hopeful I can play with down the road. And if you could tell us a little bit about the characters in your book, you've got this Lieutenant Thomas Weatherby of His uh, Majesty's Royal Navy. Thomas Weatherby is is very much an homage, I think, to C.S. Forrester's Horatio Hornblower, to uh, Patrick O'Brien's um, uh, Jack Aubrey. Uh, he's a young second lieutenant aboard a frigate. Um, he is 18 years old, and he has given immense responsibility over the lives of men, and that is a very daunting thing for anybody of any age 
to be dealing with, but especially a kid of 18. Um, and I, I really enjoyed seeing him sort of grow up through the book, um, taking on more responsibility, understanding where his duties lie, um, and how various elements can compete with, with uh, his duty. Um, so it was a really interesting character to play with, um, to uh, sort of what what drives an individual to to do his duty in the face of an overwhelming threat, something that goes beyond borders, something that goes beyond a simple war, if there is such a thing. And then on on the future side, you have Lieutenant Jane, and you have this sort of bureaucratic uh, setup within which she operates. So tell us a bit about that. Right. Again, it goes back to sort of the notion of exploration needing to be profitable. I mean, throughout human history, exploration has been driven by a number of factors, but primarily money. Um, The Spanish sent Columbus out to find gold. Um, most of the world exploration was was done to to you know for, for profit. So Jane is a astronaut in the 22nd century. She wants to explore in that great tradition of exploration. Yet she's basically working for a corporation, and that's not a lot of fun. She is babysitting a bunch of uh, very rough miners on a backwater colony on Mars, and, it, and it's very disheartening for her. Um, and through the book, and as she's starting to unravel what's going on from Mars and coming to grips with the fact that this other dimension may actually be coming into hers, I, I think it, it, it lights a spark under her, and, and she gets to sort of participate in, in a very different sort of exploration, but one that, that really appeals to her and lets her sort of grow into the person that she wanted to be. But this sounds a lot like um, what science fiction as a genre is going through right now. Like on the one hand, we have all of this looking back and nostalgia toward uh, these explorer stories and the the bold frontiers and the uh, the exciting new technology. And on the other hand, you have the reality of the 21st century, which is that some of the stuff is actually kind of boring, and uh, and that we're we're struggling to come to terms with the difference between the flying car future that we were promised and the future that we actually have. Um, was that, was that intentional? Absolutely. I mean, I'm very depressed. I didn't get my flying car. I'm still looking. <laughs> um, I, somebody, please. I want a flying car. Uh, I, I, I have always been attracted to stories of heroism. Um, I am not actually, I've read some great dystopian fiction. I've written some great sort of grittier science fiction that deals with that sort of depressing side that you mentioned. Uh, But um, I guess perhaps I'm an optimist. Um, I I like my stories with heroes, not necessarily chosen ones, those who are blessed with the gift or, you know, that, that special lineage or whatever, but just ordinary people who rise to the occasion. And I think in both settings, you have that. Um, so if anything, I think it, you know, I'd like to think the book is sort of a response to, to some of that negativity that, uh, you know, no, we can have science fiction that can be forward looking. We can have great historical fantasy that can, can really highlight, um, some of the great things about, uh, ordinary people. Again, going back to C.S. Forrester and Patrick O'Brien, you know, these were ordinary people going through extraordinary times and really having to step up. 
Um, Sherwood Smith just posted a piece a few months ago about how those Napoleonic era novels really have, uh, they're almost like the spiritual forebears of, of that heroic science fiction um, because of that element of exploration. So yeah, definitely I wanted to do that as opposed to something a little more depressing. Again, coming back to the real world, you sold this book to Nightshade Books, which was a very respected small science fiction press, and then they ran into financial difficulties, and eventually all their assets were sold. So now the book is the launch title for Nightshade's reinvention as an imprint of a bigger company, which is Skyhorse. Um, how did all of that, uh, the struggle and the sale, how did that look from the author's side? Well, it wasn't easy. Um, it, uh, one of the reasons that I was attracted to Night, Nightshade was um, they have a great reputation for producing outstanding genre books. And when they made an offer for Daedalus, I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I knew they had had some financial troubles. I also knew that they had been pulled off probation by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. So, yes, took a chance. Um, my experience with them on an editorial basis was outstanding. Ross Lockhart was my editor. He was fantastic. Uh, the cover design, the art, the edits, the copy edits, just, you know, for a debut author, you couldn't ask for anything more. Um, the business side, not so much. Um, you know, we sort of started to get an inkling of things sort of in the February, March timeframe, uh, the nightshade folks there weren't being as responsive. I'm kind of sitting there going, I'm supposed to go May 7th. Unfortunately, it, I, it, hearing from nightshade happened less and less through, through February and into March. Um, again, at the time they were negotiating for the company. But we didn't necessarily know that. I, I used to cover Wall Street. I get that acquisition deals need a certain amount of silence around them. But as an author, at the same time, I'm like, hey. And then it was just a period of waiting. Um, Skyhorse wanted a certain critical mass of authors to agree to the deal so that it would be profitable for them. They were buying a backlist as well as future works, as well as a brand that had done very well. Um, so the waiting game was tough. But by the end of May, uh, things worked out. Obviously, I knew that my release date wouldn't quite happen. Um, but I found the Skyhorse people to be uh, very good to work with. Um, certainly on the business side, they work with much more alacrity. And uh, I've met with some of their editors, and uh, I think they are dedicated to bringing the new Nightshade imprint um, to another level to, to sort of regain uh, sort of the luster of the classic Nightshade, as it were. So um, I, I think overall, it's worked out for the best. Um, the book's going to come out. Uh, the official launch date is August 13th. So I'm happy it's out. Uh, it wasn't fun to go through, but I think, again, it, it worked out for the best. So you had mentioned that you worked uh, as a reporter covering Wall Street. You were working for the AP, right, and uh, ABC News. Uh, were, you, were you always writing fiction, or did working within the world of fact make you want to create your own worlds? You know, I, I think there's a frustrated fiction writer in every journalist out there. Um, it wasn't to say that I was frustrated. I, I, I had a great run in journalism. Um, and it really hadn't occurred to me to, to write a novel. I had the idea for the Daedalus incident like a decade ago. Uh, but yeah, I got busy. I got hired to do uh, the AP gig on Wall Street. 
And uh, it didn't really, I didn't seem to have the bandwidth for it. Plus, I didn't know if I could do it. Uh, It's a different beast. Um, I don't have formal fiction training. I didn't take a class in college. But um, about almost six years ago now, um, I went to work for a financial services company in a writing capacity, which is far less hectic, and uh, sort of found myself with the the energy and time to sort of revisit it. And... um, so I gave it a shot, and uh, it worked out better than I could have hoped at this point. And um, you mentioned on your website that you live in New Jersey and you enjoy home brewing and cooking. So Mark and I are both foodies, and we were very curious. What what do you cook? <laughs> what kind of beer do you brew? Um, on the beer, I'll brew anything that's relatively simple. I don't have the equipment to do like really heavy dark Belgian ales that have to ferment for three months. Um, but I'm proud to say that with the gear that I have in my kitchen, I can do better than a Budweiser. Um, so uh, I really enjoy that. And uh, as far as cooking, um, I am a huge fan of barbecue and um, do some mean Tex-Mex and lots of things that are bad for me. But now that I'm past 40, I'm trying to do my best to cook healthier, and my wife has been very helpful with that. Now, I also see that you write quite a bit about beer on your website. Do you write about beer or food anyplace else? No, that's just sort of a sideline thing that I I sort of started on the website um, just because I I do like seeking out really different, interesting beers, giving them a try. And um, so I thought I'd throw some mini reviews on the website. So uh, it's all up there if people are looking for something to go with their barbecue. We've been talking with Michael J. Martinez. You can pre-order his novel, The Daedalus Incident, right now, and it'll be out next week, August 13th. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Nonfiction Reviews editor Alex Crowley reports on some books about sex that will knock your socks off. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. Today, nonfiction reviews editor Alex Crowley is here to dish about nonfiction books covering every aspect of how, why, whether, and when people have sex. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, I'm I, I'm excited. Um, so, so tell us a little bit. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually I'm going to put you on the spot here. You were the one who suggested this as a subject. Um, have you just been seeing a lot of books about sex crossing your desk lately? I, I lately I have. There was just one book that came in uh, when I was still working on the web annex, and it seemed just sort of a one-off. And then when I took over this. Uh, the magazine, the print spot, uh, had a whole bunch come through, um, and I haven't seen so many since, really. So I don't know if it was just sort of a a flash in the pan or you know what it was, but we got quite a few, and they're all somewhat related to one another. There are a couple that we even gave starred reviews to. I mean, this is this is not just you know titillation here these are these are real serious scholarly analytical works yeah definitely uh the 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 first one is kind of a big deal uh jesse baring uh was well known for his previous book uh, which was called why is the penis shaped like that and he is a psychologist a professor 
uh, previously uh, in Belfast, but he is American. Um, this book is tackling, well, the title is Perv. So <laughs> that should catch some attention right there. But it's called Perv, the Sexual Deviant in All of Us. And it's a somewhat psychological and historical view of the idea of what is a, a pervert and what makes for a perversion. And his goal was really to strip our quick emotional reactions from uh, different forms of sexual activity that people sort of generally find maybe repugnant or distasteful or disgusting. Um, and, and, and he boils it down to the fact that these things change according to the differing social mores of the time. Uh, so he's looking at a lot of these phenomena, um, what, what are called paraphilias, um, which is kind of a scientific way of saying things that are quote-unquote abnormal uh, sexual arousal functions. Um, he, he takes a look at those and as a means to change our, our view on like the morality of sexual behavior. Uh, the morals and ethics of sexual behavior, as it were. Does he does he find any universals, or is it really all variable? Uh, it's it's fairly variable, and um, that kind of goes into the second book that I have on my list here, which is more uh, an outright history, and that's Julie Peekman's The Pleasures All Mine: A History of Perverse Sex. Um, the, the, the two books, uh, her uh, Peekman's and Baring's, complement each other quite well. Because one is more of the uh, a scientific st- uh, take, it looks at a lot of different studies, um, and you know just the the some of the neural mechanisms of pleasure and, and those things. Whereas uh, Peekman looks at about a two thousand year history. So we're going back in, you know, to the Greeks and Romans, um, ancient civilizations, and what we know of their sexual practices um, and how that fluctuates throughout history. And so, you know, we see things that appear in one place and sort of disappear. Um, a lot of it's very Western. We don't have too much uh, information on non-Western pre- uh, historical practices, really. Um, so it's it's hard to get a really universal account of these things, but we know that you know, going back to the Greeks and Romans, and all through you know the Western Middle Ages, people engaged in a lot of varied sexual behaviors that today, uh, in our sort of puritanical American climate, uh, would be seen as abnormal or perverse or very strange. Now, which now, what kind of publishers are publishing this? Are these trade or is this academic publishing? These two books that um, you just mentioned. These are these are they're both actually. Um, Perv is is from FSG. It's their Scientific American imprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we recently did a uh, a Q and A with him um, that is set to to run in uh, our our August 12th issue, which I guess will be, this this show will be after that comes out. Um, but that's from FSG. Uh, Julie Peekman's is from Reaction, which is an imprint of the University of Chicago. Um, and then uh, 
we have another sort of academic title from Catherine Frank called Plays Well in Groups. And that is a uh, very specific um, book about the history and the, the activity of group sex. Um, Catherine Frank is an anthropologist, and she uh, she's also participated in not only the academic side, but also sort of lifestyle activities. Um, and she's worked as a stripper, um, partially for money and partially to, you know, study what it was like, study the industry, study the roles of sex work. Um, so that's that's the focus of this one, and that's from Roman and Littlefield. So it's a somewhat uh, academic or um, publisher. But then we have two more um, that take on more personal uh, accounts of, you know, quote unquote, sexual perversions. Um, one from uh, Touchstone, and that is Daniel Stern's Swingland, which is an account of participating in the swinger lifestyle, or as they just call it, the lifestyle. Yeah, I remember then, seeing this. I remember there have been a yeah. couple books out on on swingers, uh, and and this one, I think he's. I, I remember when the review came out, a journalist in California, maybe. Uh, and um, and he's uh, it's almost like participatory journalism. Yeah, and he he his is a little bit more personal, um, and he the, the stories are are pretty engaging. You know, for some people, it's probably uh, a little bit you know stomach turning because it's it's more transgressive than most people are are used to. Um, but his are a lot of personal stories from his experiences of getting into this, uh, whereas Catherine Frank's um, is personal, it's participatory, but she she keeps uh, an anthropologist's um, distance in, in her writing and her reportage. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- those two uh, complement each other pretty well. And of course, this is really nothing new. I mean, uh, Gay Talese had his groundbreaking, bre- groundbreaking bestseller book, Thy Neighbor's Wife, uh, about what uh, before it was called The Lifestyle, The Lifestyle back in the uh, mid-70s. Um, yeah. And and that was something that I think really uh, uh, shocked American uh, readers. So so it's interesting to see that this is still you know this is still subject of, of books. Yeah, and uh, I I remember um, in in the, our Q and A with Jesse Baring, he he stated that you know as much as this gets written about, which isn't that much, but it's becoming more open. People are seeing it more. Um, and it's still he even said that it's gonna be a slow, slow process of people coming to terms with these behaviors. I mean, they've always been around, but they've always been um hidden away and probably to many people that's part of the appeal is the the secrecy involved. But as more people know about them they'll they'll be less uh I don't know quite the word for it. 
clandestine. Uh, at the very <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, because there there are websites, there are discussion groups online. I mean, I I don't think of the lifestyle as being particularly secretive at all these days. If if you want to get involved, there are plenty of ways to get involved. Uh, there are conferences like Loving More, um, which are about polyamory and swinging. That are that are conferences where people go to deliver papers. I mean, um, you know, there's oh, yeah. uh, there there's there's a lot uh, of discussion about this out in the world. I really don't think of it as as being all that hidden away. No, it's it's true, but I, I think uh, also in sort of a mainstream context, people treat it as uh, an abnormality or still still some strange phenomenon, even though. The more you get to know it, you realize, hey, this isn't so strange at all. Um, and I, uh, I know uh, Catherine Frank discusses that, you know, going to conferences and meeting people and delivering papers and then mm-hmm. turning around and then, like, taking off her sort of academic classes, as it were, and, and getting involved personally. Um, I know it's also – she also opens uh, her account with – um, a story from uh, Burning Man, which I think anyone who is familiar, even if they haven't been to Burning Man, um, you know, are familiar with stories, whether they're sure. true or apocryphal. Um, that tends to be a place that has been the source of a lot of people's information on these uh, alternative uh, behaviors, I guess. And you said you, um, had, you had one more book that you wanted to mention. Yeah, this 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 one is kind of a funny counter to, uh, and it's called Prude uh, and it's from Seal Press it's by Emily Southwood and her uh, fiance um, she had they had moved to, to Los Angeles and her fiance had gotten a gig uh, working in the porn industry as a uh, you know not as a, an actor or a participant, but on like film crews or as a director, I think. Um, and so it's a, a sort of memoir-ish account of her coming to terms with what her fiancé was doing and how she had to deal emotionally with the fact that she considered herself pretty open and, and liberal and then had a hard time reconciling that with the the revulsion she felt a lot of the times with what she knew was going on with her husband's job. Um, and I think that's an interesting position to take in that a lot of people, even if they, they come into contact with these things and, and recognize them as being normal behaviors, we're still so conditioned by, by our social forces that it takes a long time to really uh, come to terms with our, our own feelings uh, on these uh, behaviors and our own sexual uh, feelings, I think. So that sounds like it's a little bit more of an outsider perspective, where the rest of these were more about the, the insider perspective. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, she, um, she uh, Southwood, considered a, a good way to, to question your own comfort levels with these activities. Um, and I think that's an interesting place to start. Whereas, uh, Daniel Stern in his Swingland, he's basically giving a guide <laughs> to, to the swing lifestyle. Um, and then of course the other three are, are more academic and scientific historical takes. Um, so you, 
I think there's a good a good array of perspectives that are offered just in these in these five books. Well, Alex, thank you so much for that roundup. I really appreciate it. Um, it's uh, good to have a sense of what's going on out in that part of the world. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's hot, hot literacy. <laughs> Keep it going. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if you have some reluctant readers, maybe this is the way to, to get them started is by finding something that's a little academic and a little salacious. Mm. I think that's great. I think people should uh, look out for the for the our interview with uh, Jesse Baring. Yeah, definitely. And you said right. that's going in, in our August twelfth issue, right? August twelfth issue. Yep. Yeah, and it'll be up on our website the same day. Well, thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rose, and thank you, Mark. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio, that's pubwklyradio on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 